Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest Kalev Kalametz. Kalev is the co-founder and CEO of Fermi Energia. Kalev earned his PhD in energy economics from Tallinn University of Technology and has extensive private and public sector experience from an Estonian private energy company and the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Kalev, thank you so much for coming back on Decouple. These are these are dark times. Um, you're joining us from from Tallinn. You're uh, a lot closer to me. I'm, I'm, I've got an Atlantic Ocean between myself and, and what's going on. Um, in a way, in my homeland, I'm, I'm half Ukrainian. I do feel a little bit divorced right. from, from that culture and that history, third generation. But yeah, I am half Ukrainian. So I'm, I'm watching with, uh, with shock uh, from so far away. Um, you're a lot closer to the action. I mean, first of all, let's just, let's just check in. Um, how are you doing right now? Uh, personally, we are uh, we're doing fine, and uh, Estonia is a member of European Union and NATO from year two thousand four, and uh, we feel very comfortable and um, and secure in in in, in those uh, positions. And uh, Estonia is a um, stable, uh, very free economy with lots of success stories, despite its uh, small size. But uh, indeed. What is going on a thousand kilometers south of us is a war that broke out this morning. The dictator Vladimir Putin committed a war crime by invading unprovoked, uh, peaceful nation of Ukraine on a very extensive manner by bombing uh, first urban areas, military, some installations, and now uh, from uh, multiple fronts engaging uh, with land forces. And uh, the fighting is uh, going on. Uh, many people have, have, have died already. And um, the battles are, uh, are raging. And uh, Ukrainians are putting up uh, very strong resistance. And I believe it's going to be a long war. There's obviously been a number of motivations advanced by Putin and others, ranging from you know, grand historic narratives to anxieties about NATO expansion. What, what's, your, what's your best understanding as to why this, this step has been taken? Obviously, there are multiple uh, considerations that are, the, but I, I think the fundamental element is that uh, Putin feels threatened that uh, Ukraine could be successful as a democracy, uh, a significant Slavic nation, uh, the birthplace of Slavic uh, countries uh, or of, of, let's say, later what, what became Russia. So the Kiev was the mother city of all Russian cities uh, a thousand years ago. And... Um, um, he feels that, uh, that, that w- it would be a fundamental, uh, fundamental uh, challenge to, to uh, the autocracy that he has developed in Russia, um, that uh, the public would see that it is possible for the Slavic nations to be non-corrupt, uh, democratic, uh, open media, uh, open market societies like normal Western societies, and uh, he feels fundamentally threatened by that. But obviously, in our, our podcast, your podcast, uh, the energy is a strong angle. And uh, here in this situation, the energy is a very, 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 very strong angle. Uh, and one of the reasons why I do believe that uh, that now has led to this conflict 
is is that um, the Nord Stream two pipeline physically is completed, and uh, Russia has believed that uh, by pressuring since uh, already uh, mid last year, uh, um, Germany to and and Europe in general to take that new pipeline into operation. Thereby, it is possible to not pipe this natural gas through Ukraine anymore, but directly fr- from the Baltic Sea. And, um, and thereby, Ukraine is not so vital for, uh, for Russia anymore. And so, that, that, the, so the strategic mistakes that Europe has made, uh, specifically Germany, have led to that, uh, have contributed to that uh, war that we are seeing now. Are you seeing that the the kind of energy politics are affecting the the kind of European unity or the unity of the West in responding to this or in, in being insufficiently strong in in supporting Ukraine? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, the policy of Russia has always been, especially through sweet deals, to uh, specific bilateral deals to specific companies, specific nation states like Italy, Hungary, uh, and uh, Germany, specifically, mostly Germany, specific companies like Wintersal, Uniper, providing kind of friend prices, thereby coercing uh, political decision-making, coercing uh, kind of lobbying, uh, funding, sponsoring, what have you, essentially corruption, uh, uh, to achieve what it wants to de-unify European policymaking uh, to achieve its foreign policy objectives that it would not be opposed and um, that uh, European nations would be subservient to its foreign policy objective, which is to control uh, its... um, to make nations dependent on Russia. And so this, to, to some extent, that has contributed to, to the conflict that we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard two sort of justifications for what many of us have perceived as the rationality of Germany making itself so dependent um, upon Russia, particularly for its gas uh, exports. And two of those stated rationales, one was, um, you know, we should buy lots of Russian gas uh, as a form of reparations for what, you know, the, the war crimes that Germany committed um, within Russia, within, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and the other was around, you know, if we integrate our two economies, it's going to make a great war between Europe or Germany and, and, uh, Russia far more, sorry, far less likely it's, uh, it's turning out, um, turning out quite differently. Yeah. That was the ideal wandel durch handel. So change through, uh, exchange essentially. Uh, that the idea uh, from 1972 uh, of the social democratic government of Willy Brandt that they pursued built the first Trushpa oil pipeline the first gas pipeline that it started to move from there uh, so it has some heritage and i would uh, i'm a part german myself and uh, uh, and uh, i understand li- <laughs> fully german language and and also the psyche and one element, the important element, is that uh, their Germans are quite anti-American, and uh, also from the even from the period of before 
the First World War, they are also quite leftist uh, in their attitudes. And so these attitudes uh, inspire a certain admiration to Russia that was the Bolshevik uh, socialist um, ideal for much of the left of, of the West and uh, carried the torch of anti-Americanism, anti-imperialism, so to say. So that is um, a strong part of the, of the narrative and a so strong reason why uh, nuclear is perceived as an American technology, which it is, and uh, therefore it is, has been um, systematically opposed by the left. As, and the left has always had uh, this pro-Russian narrative and, and reaching uh, kind of a friendship with the, with the East and not to be dependent on the Americans. So this is the dualism of, of uh, Germany and uh, that continues to this very day. But I'm very pleased that uh, at least for the new government, uh, the Green, uh, it's very surprisingly, the Green government uh, on the, its foreign policy is much more value-based and um, much more like this century thinking. And uh, they reject the Nord Stream 2 on the grounds of uh, th that being anti, uh, yeah, democratic with uh, anti-democratic Russia. So the, 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 the developments in, in Germany are really complex. And uh, this war, which is so affront to rules-based international order, and rules-based is something that is so essential to German, uh, let's say, statehood and uh, how they think about the international things. Uh, so this war, I, I follow the news from Germany and their statements, uh, really has fundamentally upset uh, the, any pro-Russian feelings that Germans might have had in their political elite. And I, I believe... Uh, Nord Stream 2 is there for sure, um, and and there will be new thinking in European mainstream uh, uh, because of that. And and I would venture into that a uh, little bit later in depth. Yeah, we're we're definitely moving in that direction. Just I guess one more question on the events of the last twelve hours. Like, are are you are you shocked by how brazen it's all been? No, I'm not shocked. You know, Typically, with with the uh, military invention uh, intervention of this size, there's there's some kind of a false flag or some kind of a justification. I mean, this was just such a naked act of aggression without any kind of narrative justification that, that I'm used to seeing in in you know previous interventions, whether it's the kind of incubator baby narrative around um, the uh, the invasion of Iraq in response to its occupation of Kuwait. Like, there's there's usually something more there. Like this. This seems this seems shocking. This seems like a real before and after moment um, in in world history that we're seeing right now. It changes the rules of the game. Absolutely, today is history, and um, this is uh, absolutely changing the the future of our children. And uh, that, that everyone will remember today, as we remember where we were and what we did during nine eleven. Uh, so this will shape, uh, of course, for decades uh, European. Uh, international politics uh, for sure and uh, we do not know the full outcome of this but what I'm what I'm absolutely confident absolutely confident that Ukrainians are hard fighters they will resist they will fight they will happily die for their country like they have done so since 2014 and uh, I'm proud about them 
and the Russians will suffer hard. And I really strongly believe also that the West will win eventually, like we won the wars uh, against the fascists um, and the Nazis. Uh, I mean, the West in, in, as a collective, despite that the beginning was a bit bumpy <laughs> and, and uh, hard. But um, uh, I, I, I strongly believe that, uh, that uh, Ukraine and West will win against Russia. And the important part of that fight is uh, energy. And uh, now we move forward on that topic. Absolutely, yeah. So let, let's talk about the the implications, how the rules of the game have changed. Um, you know, when I was in COP26 uh, speaking with uh, Stefan Haufe, the uh, the German spokesperson for their their whole delegation there, um, we talked a lot about you know the, the phase out of coal and what the plan was going forward um, to balance out their enormous renewables fleet, and you know it was gas, 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 and. Um, it, Nord Stream 2 didn't really seem to bother him that much. Um, and they're just he didn't have another answer in terms of what was going to replace that going forward. Um, there's talk, I believe, uh, within the German government, I think it was the chancellor who said that they're needing to have a quick reevaluation of, of their energy system in, in the aftermath of this, this intervention or even in the buildup to it. Um, what, are you, what are you seeing as the likely developments here? What's, what's happening even as we speak? As we speak, uh, my co- compatriot, uh, uh, Commissioner for Energy in European Commission, Kadri Simpson, uh, I know her well, uh, she has been touring for two weeks uh, the world uh, for LNG. And so we, uh, uh, we're, we're trying to get as much LNG to Europe as possible. Unfortunately, the Germans have not built any LNG terminals on the hope of, of this pipeline. But um, the, the LNG import capabilities, I, I think, are uh, not so bad. But what is the problem is the LNG supply itself. And uh, so all, as much as I know, vast majority of the cargos are, are contracted already. So getting hands on new LNG requires much higher prices. And this is what we're seeing today. The prices have, have moved really high, almost close to record highs. So I, I believe that the moving into next year, uh, the reservoirs will be also record empty um, without uh, uh, Russian supplies. Uh, it, the, we going into winter 2023, 22-23, uh, the reservoirs will be maybe 60% or so, even lower than they were um, what, six months ago. So it means that the prices will remain for gas and, and uh, power will be remaining high for many, several years. And this is the analytic view as well. So, and, and the reason is, well, uh, the, Russia is essentially has abandoned the spot market. Uh, uh, you know, they're f- fulfilling their long contracts, but they are not supplying additional supplies to the short con- market, not just not selling. And um, uh, so it will be uh, very challenging. But uh, the best expectation is that uh, somehow it, it will be possible to model through. One important delta there that obviously uh, I, I've talked to many people in Belgium and, uh, and, um, and Poland and other places is that uh, it is imperative to maintain the existing co- uh, nuclear units uh, operational. I believe also the coal units, unfortunately, must stay 
operational will not be phased out as in the original plans. So that's uh, definitely disappointing in the terms of CO2 emissions. Also last year, it was very disappointing for the European Union in terms of CO2 emissions. Um, the renewable build-out will proceed, but uh, you know this pace cannot be uh, due to the supply chain, but also the permitting issues and all of those objective bottlenecks. It can't be you know, dub, made double faster. So, and, and so the, the same is true with LNG. I worked in the energy business and I know that the development cycle is just so long uh, to, to have the permits in place, to have a specific construction project, the construction teams, the supplies. The, so essential building a new LNG train in Sabin Pass or, uh, or anywhere in, in the Gulf Coast, even if you have all the permits in place, uh, takes three three years, just construction. So and and I know in in Canada there are multiple NG, LNG projects, but they are not progressing so well, right? So that 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 is the reality of energy business that it, the lead times are very substantial. Yeah, I mean geopolitical considerations are going to be smashing up hard against um, against climate goals, um, and and that's going to catch big LNG producers like well, I'm thinking mostly of the USA here in, in a real conundrum. Um, in terms of uh, how how the Biden administration moves forward with their policy, um, whether uh, keeping Europe fueled is going to to trump their their carbon cutting commitments, um, you know, there's uh, Roger Pilkey's Iron Law of uh, of electricity, which is you know basically that you'll uh, cut down the last tree to keep your kids warm at night. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this this plays out on the on the geopolitical front. Um, what do you, what do you anticipate? Do you think the U.S. is going to ramp up its its LNG in order to to help its uh, EU allies through this the next few years? It's already ramped up, but the 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 the, the only delta is that uh, instead of supplying I don't know Chinese customers, supplying a European customers, and obviously it will make some Chinese customers unhappy. So I don't know how it is possible, but it, it somehow it has to work out. I know and. Uh, so uh, we are definitely going to see uh, much, much more stronger geopolitical element to, to energy this year and, and coming years than we were accustomed to, let's say, market, uh, uh, market mechanisms uh, uh, and marketplace, uh, especially in, in gas. So it's, um, it's going to be uh, very, very tough, I believe, for Europe. Because the gas, uh, European, its own gas production in offshore, onshore, it's, it's in decline. And uh, also what is reality also when it comes to coal, the problem is not that we want to close coal, but also the coal plants are old. And also the coal itself, the, I mean, the brown coal, the lignite and, and also the black coal, it's out. It's, it's just physically out. And, uh, so. Uh, there's this very significant crunch, for example, in, in Poland that, uh, and, and also in Estonia, where we have significant capacities that will be just, you know, you can't make 70 year old man run a marathon every day. It's very, he will die. <laughs> the same is with, um, fossil plants. They will, they are, they are limited lifetime capacities. 
in, in terms of Europe's own in, in endogenous energy resources, um, as you're saying, the uh, the offshore North Sea um, gas fields of, of the UK are running dry. Um, the Dutch aren't pulling much more out because they're getting earthquakes now. Um, I guess Norway's still producing, and and the coal fields you're saying are, are drying out in in uh, in Germany and, and Poland to a degree. I mean, this is a situation of of almost utter utter energy dependence. Yes, it's very bad. Is there is if fracking is still still uh, off the cards? Uh, do you think that's going to going to change? No, it's, uh, in Europe, it's we have zero fracking. Uh, the geology is different, and also the environmental permitting. And so, um, also in UK, the last company uh, had to pull, pull the plug. So uh, it's it's zero. It's very bad, <laughs> and that's why we need to deploy uh, small modular reactors. Right, right. So let's let's go there. First off, though. I don't want to speak for you, but for myself, it's it was pretty astounding seeing a real sea change in the public discourse about about nuclear, how it's discussed. Um, you know, the prominence in the media of really sensible narratives coming out of nuclear as a result of the the European energy crisis of 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 this year pre war. Um, it's it's quite incredible how much the discourse shifted, and I think um, you know due to this tragedy, it's likely that the discourse is going to further shift. Um, again, given what we've just described in terms of Europe's incredibly narrow options for keeping the lights on. Um, so yeah, let's let's shift gears um, into into what you just mentioned there. W- what do you see as as uh, the prospects and and solutions beyond um, trying to ramp up LNG production and offload tankers, um, and particularly how do we stay on track with decarbonization? Yeah, um, so I don't know about decarbonization, but uh, uh, what really, uh, indeed, you, you, I, I think, uh, hinted on is, is the taxonomy discussion we had in Europe. And uh, in January, indeed, the European Commission came out with its um, uh, official proposal on the uh, taxonomy. It's, it's called um, Complementary Delegated Act on Taxonomy of Sustainable Finance, where nuclear, on specific conditions, that there is a final uh, repository for spent nuclear fuel by 2050 and uh, some certain other conditions for, like accident tolerant u- u- fuel utilization. If those technical requirements and there are, let's say, a couple of pages more technical requirements are being met, then nuclear energy, new investments, but also life extensions can be considered sustainable. And uh, this is really important in terms of the cost of capital for new investments and uh, because it's so capital intensive that uh, that is really vital but it's also a clear political message to uh, European community it is obviously resisted by the stupid Austrians and then the Luxembourgians and then the Germans who consume nuclear energy but uh, incredibly have some kind of a mental problem with with, um, opposing production of nuclear energy Um, so Definitely real historic sea change. I, I, and I think that the Greenies and so whether whoever are uh, opposing nuclear energy are just a kind of a, a noise with which they are making for internal political and organizational reasons uh, is, is essentially irrelevant. So that now the only challenge and the main challenge is actual deployment. And this is a problem. As, as uh, Mark Nelson has discussed, uh, the successes or failures of large nuclear deployment the uh, last 20 years, there are serious problems. There are serious problems with large nuclear. Uh, 
it's not only that uh, that uh, we have do not have the experience and uh, and uh, the companies a little bit are let's say not so not so good doing their work not uh, not so good and 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 other other items and or the regulatory things but I, I believe that there is very re- really important is also to understand that the the plants themselves have grown so large so complex you know the VVR in uh, 1,200 megawatt is 50 different buildings. So 50 different buildings and structures to build at the same time to have a, uh, this 1,200 megawatt uh, running and licensed. It's so massive uh, project that has to execute it, everything so well in chain, chain reaction. So it's, 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 it's very likely that these, these not, do not work out uh, so well. If 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 you do not have like uh, very continuously done that, and um, so therefore I uh, and and looking at also our good friends in Poland and Czech Republic and um, and France and in England deploying lo- lo- uh, and preparing for large nuclear, how slowly it goes. I I'm I have to say I'm disappointed. I cannot see unfortunately how. Uh, large nuclear can make a significant dent in the decarbonization or and energy security in such as well. Uh, I, I, I'm, I mean, it pains me to say that. I really would like it to be. I really would, but it 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 is not for real practical reasons. Not for political, but il- more more so practical reasons. And, and one very important element about SMRs, uh, people fail to a little bit understand who are not practical in, in the energy, uh, is, is financing. You know, getting 8 billion, 10 billion together is a huge, monumental challenge. Uh, and so financing uh, 1 billion deployment project or 2 billion pro- deployment projects is a substantially uh, more doable for more exponentially more players and which means that the market is substantially larger and 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 you're able to de-risk the supply chain the deployment much quicker and time is really 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 important in in energy yeah so i i, I believe that the smrs we is something really serious yeah time is of the essence here the way in which the world has changed in the last 12 hours um, is very likely to lead to further divisions in, in the world in terms of our, our supply chains. Um, you know, and the degree to which, say, in Finland, it was palatable to be working on a VVER. Um, you were you're suggesting to me in our pre-interview that that that, that, that could have shifted. Um, the reality is, is that the people building nuclear plants well and on time um, are all coming from countries outside of the the West sort of sphere of influence. And if these technologies become polarized in terms of uh, in terms of their supply chains, um, the West is going to have to sort of look within itself um, to find that capacity, a lot of it which has been um, offshored uh, through deindustrialization. Um, so what do, what do you see as the prospects? I wouldn't idealize uh, Chinese or the Russians. Uh, I know from uh, people working inside uh, Russian-led projects that their management is uh, autocratic, uh, very subservient to uh, top uh, superior managers. 
not thinking for themselves too much, a little bit overstaffing and not being innovative and open to um, how to say. And so these are fundamental problems. They are very good in, in stealing and repeating stuff, but, uh, but not so good in actually uh, uh, getting into new environments and, and also executing better and better and better every time. So I, I, I wouldn't idealize the VVR and the Rosatom uh, supply chain. Um, neither the Chinese. I've heard also many uh, practical stories and, on how they kind of uh, do not pay appropriate t- attention to, to safety and, and the quality, what, what would be necessary. But nevertheless, I mean, uh, we in the West, uh, we uh, indeed have to deal with our own challenges. And here, indeed, looking at our financial and um, energy market environment and uh, other realities than the SMRs, uh, I strongly believe, based on practical discussions and experiences and, and planning, I, I cannot see how um, really uh, large nuclear can be even a competitive play to, compared to SMRs uh, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I was speaking just in reference to getting power plants on the grid on budget and on time. That's something that that China and Russia have accomplished to a greater degree than the West in the last 20 years anyway. I think I think we could agree on that. But it does it does lead us to this question of uh, so so i mean the turkey project is very expensive okay you you've taken a great interest in uh, my my backyard here in ontario where um at darlington really the first uh, smr um of of its of its kind is uh, in terms of this new model that we're seeing is is being planned and shovels are supposed to be in the ground very soon um a lot of eyes are on uh this bwrx 300 that's uh, going to be built at darlington um so Tell me why I think, you know, we were, I, was, I was trying to lead into this that, um, you know, if the West is having to look to itself a lot more and, and to its own supply chains, particularly for strategic uh, industries like energy, um, why Canada, in your opinion, is, is going to have a major, a major role and responsibility in this? The more I learn, the more I'm impressed about um, uh, Canada, that it's um, a little bit like a uh, little bit like Estonia, that kind of not too prominent and the people are kind of a, um, um, how to say, not too posting and uh, stuff, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, quietly, systematically uh, have a really good ecosystem of nuclear energy, uh, meaning that the regulator is good, the uh, market is system uh, with, with this pricing mechanism in Ontario is good, that the nuclear supply chain is good. You have a, a, the only heavy forging um, uh, manufacturing facility in the North America in Canada, 100 kilometers from Toronto in Cambridge. Um, you have uh, excellent fuel uh, supply uh, capabilities in, in, uh, in the chemical, and uh, you have excellent track record in execution refurbishment by in Darlington, but, but also in Bruce. And, uh, and you have multiple companies, uh, not one single EDF, but uh, multiple companies, a uh, little bit competing with, with each other in terms of who is executing better. And I, I, I really congratulate also the, on, the, on this way where the, there is a Bruce Energy Company and then uh, OPG, 
which um, so that the, all the assets are on, and the operation is not you know totally monopolized. And uh, so I, I think it's a vibrant environment. Uh, and obviously, Canada is a little bit northern nation than uh, compared to United States or or many European nations. So it's um, not as northern latitude as Estonia, but uh, you know more close to the setting we have in Finland and Sweden, where energy is really needed. And and you know this um, uh, uh, the the renewable uh, is is just objectively is is not um, can provide uh, relevant quantities of energy that is needed for the population. That's pretty. That's pretty astounded. A friend of mine was pointing out that the Canadian GDP is actually larger than that of Russia. Um, that was a, a shock to me. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I think, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a big shock because I just think about you know what what we're capable of doing um, in terms of our our industrial output. Um, you know, maybe confining that to nuclear. Um, it's it's nice to hear your your rosy words. Um, and. You know, I've 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 definitely heard that assessment before that that Canada, um, you know, is is a nuclear leader and and particularly in the West. Um, and of course, I have I have high expectations. Um, but certainly, we do have, as you're mentioning, a, a really active uh, refurbishment industry. The largest infrastructure project in the country is the refurbishment of our of our Candus at, at Darlington and Bruce. So, there's something going on here. Um, it's certainly not anything like the Russians building you know, gigawatt scale reactors all over the world. Um, but it's a start. Um, and uh, I, I do like the idea of us being able to play a greater role and for there being a sort of geopolitical imperative to do that, um, I think is, is going to be quite interesting. Uh, Chris, I would make a, make, make a very strong point here. Norwegian Equinor is very active player from Norway, which is 6 million nation, so smaller than Ontario is a very active player globally in uh, many oil and gas plays. Um, the Vestas and, and uh, Ørsted from Denmark, which is also a smaller nation than, uh, uh, than maybe Alberta, uh, is, is very active play, player globally in uh, offshore and onshore wind. Uh, so I do believe really what you uh, say that, that uh, Canada has been uh, kind of uh, successful in exporting to Romania, uh, Argentina, uh, South Korea, to China even, and some other nations, uh, this uh, uh, this candle technology. And now, with deployment of uh, first SMR, that is really uh, simple, uh, efficient, uh, very safe, really based on experience, I do really strongly believe that Canada has a strong opportunity to not only to export uh, technology and know-how, but also uh, contribute financially, take the lead in some deployment projects to accelerate decarbonization. I was astounded to find out that Canada still imports oil from Russia. And from Nigeria, uh, so you're still burning a lot of oil and gas. So you, Canada, need to decarbonize, of course, as well. But you need to, you have a responsibility to export. Look, I had the responsibility 
from uh, kind of, um, I don't know, I had the experience, I had the know-how, uh, my life led to me to establish the company that I have. But so Canada having these uh, ecosystems, these capabilities, this is not just, you know, gift from God. In the historic situation where we find ourselves, right, uh, of decarbonization being absolute global imperative, we have to bloody do it. And we have to do it with everything we can. And also we have to defend democracy. We have to do it. Otherwise, we will be conquered. And so Canada, therefore, is not just kind of a, uh, some bystander hobbit in a, a shire or somewhere. You are part of this world. You do have a responsibility. And therefore, it is your duty and, and, and obligation to provide the world, to help the world to decarbonize. It is not just empty words, but this has to mean action by Canada as a state, Canadians as a people. So how do you, how do you anticipate um, folks like yourselves from, from Europe uh, interacting with, with the Canadians or, um, or, or get, gaining from our experience? I mean, it's uh, optimistically that uh, that reactor in Darlington will be on the grid in 2028. That's still quite some time away. You know, so far there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of planning, but- There's a lot of work. So can that work that's been done help streamline the processes that, that you're attempting to do to, to speed up this SMR revolution in the EU? Or does that contribution come later? I don't like fancy words like revolution. I don't like at all. No, the, that, that contribution is absolutely uh, moving forward. Uh, I, and this is the right uh, kind of mind, mind frame that uh, there has to be work and the work is ongoing. I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to be specific here publicly, but uh, we have really good partnership with multiple uh, partners in Canada in uh, planning activities and uh, doing a lot of work this year and coming years in really learning uh, on Canadian experience. Um, but I, I would have to say, I would, uh, if I would be have a have a discussion with uh, your prime minister, Mr. Trudeau, I would um, uh, emphasize to him that um, that what I said earlier that uh, it is not just a nice thing that is going on in Ontario, but this is really important, really important that has to should have national significance and international significance, especially talking today, especially in the light of that the carbon emissions in uh, 2021 increased globally, unfortunately, uh, not decreased what is, is supposed to be happening. And what is really, un unfortunately, we are moving uh, forward in this, uh, this century in direction of 3.5 or so, uh, four degrees scenario instead of two or 1.5. So things are bad, really bad. And uh, there has to be much more stronger focus on, and, and on all technologies, on renewables, but also very strong focus on, on nuclear. I think climate is going to drop in terms of um, where, it's, where, it, where, it, where it sits. 
um, in terms of our how we ascribe importance in the light of this these big geopolitical uh, twists and turns, um, as you were saying, with the immediate needs probably being met by by fossil fuels and the need for for those industries to be further invested in and developed in order to make up for for what's being cut off from from Russia or what Russia will not supply anymore. That's uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. Well, so and so, I, yeah, I I, I, I do believe. I, I mean, I, uh, I, as a as a responsible person, I have to look forward what is going to happen this year and next year and year after that and so forth, uh, in terms of, of my business and my country and and the world, and 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 the general environment, and uh, it is absolutely undeniable that we are going to have very very bad news when it comes to forest fires, uh, desertification, and uh, glacier melts, and uh, extreme weather events this year, worse year after that, worse year after that, worse year after that, the coral reefs are going to die, ecosystems are going to be disrupted, there is going to be continuous uh, bad news that we can not anymore influence. This is beyond all control. We have done so much sinning on this carbon front that uh, that uh, that it's there is going to be. It's absolutely certain that coming decades will be uh, many many bad news. Well, Caleb, I think we'll we'll leave it there. I hate to leave it on the the note of your final words being bad news. So <laughs> I want to give you a chance to <laughs> speak a few moments. I guess like what I, what I'm really thinking about again is is sort of a, if there's a new uh, iron curtain falling to some degree, um, and the West is going to need to be more self reliant um, by virtue of the kind of sanctions that will need to be put in place. Um, it, it remains to be seen how China is going to fall into this. Whether um, you know they will seize the opportunity to annex Taiwan. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, getting into some hypotheticals here, but this could really lead to a profoundly divided world. Um, you know, d- global decarbonization would obviously be a much more successful project if there was unprecedented cooperation, economic cooperation. Um, the West has lost so much of its of its capacity. It's deindustrialized and it's weakened its energy systems. Um, it gives me great, great pause and great concern um, thinking about, you know, how how we can, if especially if we're having to sort of go it on our own, um, reindustrialize in order to have the capacity to, um, you know, rapidly expand the energy systems that we'll need to decarbonize. That's that's a, a big challenge. Yeah, and I would uh, continue on the uh, realistic path that uh, I believe that the petro autocratic petro state and the fossil states. Uh, like Russia, like Algeria, like Kazakhstan and uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, uh, they will not, and also China that is reliant on coal, they will not decrease carbon emissions uh, based on our hopes and expectations because these fossil fuels are the essence of the power vertical that is in the autocratic nations that controls the power uh, of the oligarchy or the corruption, what we would like to call, but essentially feudalism, and uh, they will not give up power. And uh, so what we have to do as West, who has developed essentially all the technologies that we're using today, uh, over, we have those, developed those technologies, including nuclear energy, uh, over the last 100 years, we have to develop now superior technologies that uh, uh, reduce costs, 
enhance prosperity and are superior to fossil technologies in terms of energy density. And unfortunately, despite the, uh, the positive impacts of, of renewables, uh, the only technology that can do that, I, I'm, I'm sure your guests know uh, and listeners very well, is nuclear energy. But we have to do it much, much, much better and much better technologies. And I, I can't see that the large nuclear is going to provide that. So therefore, and I can't also see that the advanced nuclear is going to, going to provide that. So we have to go for as simple um, um, and efficient uh, SMRs as possible. And therefore, the, the Darlington project is absolutely essential, together with some other SMRs that have to deploy it, uh, uh, well, not providing disappointments, but providing excellence, providing uh, uh, new hope, and uh, that would be emulated, deployed, financed uh, mass in significant numbers uh, in democratic nations. So this century has to be rebirth of uh, nuclear energy or we will fail in decarbonization and uh, decoupling what, what your podcast is about. So that would be my positive note. And, uh, and the Canada has a strong responsibility, strong opportunity here. And I, I very much hope that the Canadian youth and, um, and the nature, nation as such uh, will rise to the occasion and um, will do what is necessary to do for all of us. I don't think uh, on our energy front, we're used to thinking about things in such uh, in such geopolitically significant terms, but uh, thank you for introducing that into, into the discourse. Caleb, it's a, it's a pleasure to chat. Um, thanks again for, for joining us. Welcome to the world. <laughs> thank you very much, Chris. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.